something different this way comes something something different something different something different this way comes something something different something different I'm Heather McLeod and this is season 4 episode 5 of something different this way comes Today's conversation was recorded in Lucy Lavoie and Ken Deacon's dining room in Thunder Bay, mostly with Lucy, though Ken pops in to talk about beans about halfway through. And we were feasting on Ken's bean dip as we chat, because Lucy had not only very graciously and generously agreed to this chat, she welcomed me with mint tea from her garden, thin slices of homemade bread, and the bean dip. Plus, there was a cake bacon in the oven to boot. And I have to say, when I was editing this tape, one of the most challenging aspects was how often we laughed. Laughter is often louder than normal conversation, so it's kind of stressing my microphone. But what a great reason to have to adjust volume because you're having such a good time. When I first met Lucy, it was through work. I was at CBC, and she was across the street at Eco Superior. Then we were in the same book club for over a decade. She's a friend, but... I don't know how much she realizes what an inspiration and a mentor she's been to me as well. Since I've met her, I've gone from naive flower gardener to someone who eats food I've grown year-round. And along the way, advice she's given me has really been impactful. I draw on it all the time, when gardening and when figuring out how to set my harvest aside so we can eat it all year long so it lasts. That's what she's prepared to talk about, by the way, at the Northwest Climate Gathering this weekend. I hope you're coming, or register now to join us virtually. I'll include the link in the episode notes. We're at Lucy and Ken's house, in their cozy dining room, which is quite resonant. I was amazed listening back to just how loud our shifting in our chairs and uh, stirring in of honey into our tea ended up being, but I I cut some of it out for the sake of your ears, so you could hear the conversation, which is... A joy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to take a little bit of your... What kind of beans? Uh, they are, we call them French hort, but we just have made up the names over the years because we've been keeping the seeds for so long mm-hmm. that we have no idea what they are, but we know we know what they are mm-hmm. right? with the names mm-hmm. that we give them, but they're, yeah, it's just... So we call them a French hort, but they're not French horticultural beans because they're pole beans, but they have a little bit of modeling that might make you think that they are. Okay, that's a whole referencing a lexicon of beans that I think very few people can share. (laughs) Well, you know, I tried one year looking it up online, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. blue speckled mottled bean, you know, just to see what kind of dry bean I'd get. And, and, uh, I've got some names, you know, and I, I labeled everything with these new names, and Kim and I kept getting confused. <laughs> so we just went, oh, forget it. <laughs> we'll just go back to calling them what we've always called them, like Joe's Bean and, you know, Mandy's Bean, because Mandy gave us the bean from her family, and, and, you know, Joe was our neighbor next door, and so he, when he passed away, had left buckets of beans in, his, in the basement, and when they cleaned out his house... We bought his house, the house next door. When they cleaned out his house, they didn't take the beans. And it was like, oh, we were excited. And (laughs) and they're just fabulous. Mm. Um, Yeah, so. Okay. Shall I pour out some tea? Yeah. 
But it's actually spearmint, not peppermint. Let's not put it over the bread or I'll end up getting tea all over the bread. How do you keep your spearmint from taking over your garden? Oh, I plant it in an area of the garden. Um, it's very shady. And there's raspberries beside it. And the raspberries are equally aggressive. And it's right next to the greenhouse. So the greenhouse is one of the borders. The raspberries, the other. So did you grow up gardening? Did you have like a moment of revelation and say, how mm. far can I go with food and my day-to-day -day eating habits? Where would you say this all took root? Mm. Trees. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, well, I always, I was born in Northern Ontario up in Hearst, but my parents moved to Southern Ontario when I was about five. And I think I really, really missed the bush and the forest as a child growing up in, the, in Oakville, is where I grew up, so it was in a city. And I, I just loved going to all of the little pocket parks or those little pieces of land that have not been developed that still had, you know, trees on them and, and I just love trees. So I went into forestry as a job, you know, I got a degree in forestry and, and uh, I just had plants all over my room as I was growing up. I just loved plants. My mother was a really good gardener as well. So I learned some things, but it's amazing how little you pick up from your parents when you're gardening because you're not interested or something. But that was kind of the, the genesis, like I just love plants. I love trees, I love plants. And that's kind of as soon as I was able to grow anything anywhere, I started growing stuff. They're so miraculous, you know, like a, a plant. I, I think of, I remember bringing um, a sunflower into Sammy's senior kindergarten class that he had planted that spring and it was fall and it was like nine feet tall. And telling the kids that this was a seed, not as long ago as before you were a baby, but just back in the few months ago before the summer started. And their, their minds were blown. And every time I really think about plants, my mind is blown. Yeah, that's exactly what I, how I feel like we plant the garden, you're looking at it, it's been planted, and it's still dirt because things haven't really come up yet. Dirt, sorry, beautiful soil. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then we just, you see things start to germinate, and it is. I think it's just, it's a miracle. It really is. Yeah. It's amazing. And just taking care of plants. I just love being, um, I love being in forests. I love being in the garden, especially when the pole beans are really tall and the sunflowers are tall. And, and I just, I don't know, it just makes me feel so peaceful and hopeful and happy and 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 I forget all of that nasty stuff that's happening and, and that's it's priceless really mm -hmm. because some would think that the commitment you guys make I said in the introduction that you're a friend of, of decades now and when I first met you we, we worked across the street from each other I worked at CBC and across the street with Eco Superior and and you guys would do things that were newsworthy on a regular basis so we got to know you that way and then we got to know well enough that if we were stuck because something fell through, we have a show to fill, you guys would always know something worth talking about. So you became our go-tos as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's really sweet. <laughs> uh, 
But it's a lovely way to know a person, like how much they know and how generous they are with their insight and their willingness to get creative with the topic and turn it into a conversation. It was a wonderful way to get to know you. Um, but then, and I think I, I think I know the year, but I could be wrong. I think it was 17, 18 years ago when the 100 Mile Diet came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gerald, my co-host, and I were kicking it around. We had a national interview with the, with the authors. And our immediate instinct was, well, they're in B.C., Right. They're in BC. That's why they can do this, right? We live in the wrong climate. And somehow I ended up talking to you guys because you're like, no, it's not about climate. We can grow our own food here. And again, it blew my mind. So how did that come to be that you guys made a commitment to try to really go local as much as you could before that was a thing? Like it, you, were, you were well practiced when this book was like making everybody look at their grocery shelves differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it was about 40 years ago now that we really started. We started small. Um, I had this vision in my head. I've always had this vision that all the front yards in the city should be wild. They should be trees. They should be habitat for other species. They should be ferns. They should be shrubs. All of that in everybody's front yard and everybody's backyard should be a garden where they grow food. I love that vision. I want that town. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. And so we've been able to do that here. You know, the, the three sort of we, over the years, have purchased our neighbors' houses to expand our gardens and have been able to do that in the front yards and in the back. And it just makes so much sense to me, you know, that we should share the bounty of the earth with other species instead of having lawns. So really, my this kind of started with a... A hatred of lawns, because it's a monoculture, it requires, it used to require so much input, like, what a stupid use of pesticides to keep lawns. And of course, it was, it was the thing when 40 years ago, you know, it's very important. Um, Not to mention burning fossil fuel in order to keep it at an even length. Oh, all of that. Just totally ridiculous. Um, So we started with our house, because this is what we had. So we redid the front yard. We made little stone walls in the front and planted ferns. And I'm looking at the front yard as we say it. And it's just beautiful now. I love it. And the backyard, we have a fairly small city lot. We started super intensive gardens, like triple cropping areas, uh, companion planting, and we learned an awful lot about growing food in a small space and how to maximize your yield. I need to stop at that because you put real effort into it. It didn't just happen. It wasn't like all these cartoons that um, kids watch where the magic of the plant is exaggerated. You know, the chicken always has chicks they never seem to grow up, and the farmer can go outside and pick absolutely anything. It's always ripe. You know, that yeah. sort of being an exposure to farming that some people never get beyond. So not only did you make a real effort, but also you brought some savvy to it because you're a forester. And, and Ken's also, like, got some additional biological insight into the world that can help you in, learning the, the, in this learning curve, but it was still a steep learning curve. Yeah, Ken is an entomologist, so that really helped. I did the plants, and he did the bugs. And yeah. he's like, what's going on? <laughs> what's happening here? And then he'd say, oh, that's a blah, blah, don't worry about it. Or he'd say, you know, this is a serious problem, and this is what we could do about it organically. I think the real uh, impetus was that we could not get any organic food. 
we could not get organic food in, in Thunder Bay 40 years ago. It did not exist, and I didn't want to eat pesticides. I just, it's always been a really, really underpinning of all the choices I make. Pesticide-free. It's just, why would anybody eat chemicals? And so that was a big part of it. And you're right, it's a lot of effort. Not so much anymore, because we know so much, and it's now it's like you just get on the treadmill <laughs> in May, and you get off about a week and a half ago. <laughs> and that's great. Now it's easy. But when we were first learning, I mean, you learn every year. Everything you do, you learn every year. But, yeah, it was... Um, it required, and I don't know how I did it, you know, because we would work during the day, and then we'd come home and weed the garden and plant, and, you know, we'd be up late. I remember weeding by, you know, almost flashlight, <laughs> you know, because, yeah, it requires effort. It's, yeah, it's a lot of work, and I have the unbelievable amount of respect for farmers, especially the farmers that do it without using pesticides and all sorts of massive amounts of fossil fuel inputs. <laughs> the cake may be ready. Ooh, okay. Mmm. <laughs> I love Ken's bean dip. It's delicious. Is it ready? No, we're going to have another five minutes or so. Perfect. Yeah. Hi, Ken. Is the recording going on? It yeah. is, but we're kind of just eating. We're just taking a break. <laughs> okay. We're enjoying your bean dip. Delicious. Okay. What kind of beans are they? They started out as a French horticultural. Oh, those French ones you were telling us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we were mentioning. She my, was mentioning the French and, uh, They were a bush bean and now they're a pole bean. At least we're, we're, I'm working on, a, on it as a pole bean. But it's a very promiscuous bean. Oh, it gets okay. around. So I'll show you um, <clears throat> how promiscuous it is. Oh, my goodness. That's okay. all one bean? It's all from... The, the ones that I planted look like that. Oh, wow. So now I have the beans for next year that I've selected to plant. They've been planted beside the scarlet runners and other beans that were in the garden. There they are. There's black beans in there. There's kidney beans in there. There's bush beans in there. You know, I know what I planted and I know what I harvested. So this that's a really amazing bean. That's the other part about the miracle. The miracle in planting the seed. And what comes out the other side is not necessarily what you think. Right. Oh, wow. What happened? <laughs> oh, you actually got a cake made. So that's a very uh, beady looking beet cake there, is it? Record, I'll be quiet. Okay. So after we admired and talked about beans, Ken left. And um, before I get back into my conversation with Lucy, I'd like to take a little pause and do two things. First, imagine Lucy's vision of a Thunder Bay where lawns have become a rarity, reserved for sports fields and such. And instead, streets are lined with not just trees, but full-on forest full of wildlife and backyards bursting with food gardens. That vision inspired the chorus of the song that I just wrote for you. It's called Lucy's Vision. Front yards full of all that is wild Backyards bursting with food It beguiles children playing Neighbors saying How good it is living here How good it is living here 
vision Lucy has. I'll give you the whole song in a bit. But first, there's another thing I want to take a moment to underline now, which is how hard it is to garden, to grow food, even with savvy and education and parents to learn from and years to practice. The learning curve is steep and long, which is why Lucy has such respect for farmers, especially those who don't use chemicals like organic farmers. Growing food's hard, and there is nothing more valuable, no better work to spend your time doing. Pretty much everything comes after food when it comes to what's really important. So, learning to grow food this really benefits from a mentor. And I consider Lucy and Ken mentors, but I want to take a moment to tell you that that does not mean that she took me under her wings kind of like Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid with one-on-one lessons or stuff like that. If ever I had a question, I always knew I was welcome to ask. And I do remember at least once when I asked questions about grafting apples, they just showed up at the farm and, and pitched right in and gave us a hand. They're so kind. But mostly what I learned from Lucy came up in casual conversation about gardening. When we saw each other, we'd find out, you know, what's going on in your garden? What are you doing? What are you worrying about? What are you tackling? What have you learned? And generally what she was doing was for me a flag. Oh, I guess I should be doing that about now. And how she was doing was often a lesson. Oh, maybe that's how I should do that, which would work better. I would ask and listen and imitate and emulate and learn, learn, learn. Like I mentioned, not just about gardening, but also about keeping your harvest so you can eat it until next year's harvest, or at least for much longer than your average grocery store carrot. It's a real learning curve. That's another one. Daunting on your own. And I've bought books. I have read them. I love it. I love learning. But there's nothing as organic as conversation and example. It's such a gift. And it's one easily shared when you have time together in community. Learning feels good. So does teaching and having your your insight valued. But so does that hard work of gardening itself. Which brings me back to Lucy. But I think what I really want to say is that growing and taking care of a garden can really bring peace in a time of turmoil. And I think that's where we are now. And we need to find ways to make ourselves to make ourselves move beyond all of the terrible things that are happening, you know? And so many of them you can't do anything about. But the nice thing about climate change and gardening is that in this little peaceful oasis that you create in your garden, you're actually contributing to a solution to climate change, you know? And I find that just so elegant, you know, that I could be out there having just a really, really good connection with the earth, with the soil, with the plants, and know that it's helping, it's not hurting. And I'm building up the soil, I'm not, I'm not depleting it. So whoever buys this house after us better have a garden. <laughs> Because that is true, too. Like, we think of so many of our activities as being things that take away from the resources of the earth. But in fact, we do have choices. And sustainable gardening and farming actually capture carbon and build life in the living soil. 
That's absolutely right. And somehow that connection is is so powerful. You know, it's like, yeah, it, it's a wonderful feeling to know that you can contribute in a positive way while meeting your own needs. You know, I have to admit, I was definitely... Um, you know, as you know, I worked in the environmental field for 30 years, 35 years. Um, and after that length of time talking about, like especially like 40 years ago when I was teaching a course at Cullen College about environmental studies and talking about what climate change would mean, honestly, people thought I was insane. They did not believe me. They thought I was like a wing nut, you know, and I knew I was right. But you're still marginalized because you're so far out from where people want to be. You're talking about things they do not want to hear about because they don't want to know. And I think at the time it was 2011 was the big year when things would fall apart. You know, and so, oh, we were off by a decade. Oh, well. <laughs> you know? And after all of these years of teaching and, you know, going to and setting up demonstrations, you know, trying to get recycling happening in the city of Thunder, like so many years of working, I finally got totally burned out because it felt like it was just beyond me. I had done everything I could and it was not changing fast enough. And I retired and went to the garden and I feel so much better about everything now because it somehow healed this big gap in my soul. You know, and I know we're going to hell in hand, Carl. But, you know, at least I'm doing something about it. I love hearing that because I have seen that in you. I have seen a weariness just like, yes, that's a battle worth fighting, but please don't ask me because I'm tired. So I'm glad mm -hmm. to hear that this precious place that you have stewarded and built a relationship with, giving yourself more time there, also restored some of your peace because you've earned it. You've inspired me, right, with your persistence and your generosity and your uh, savvy, like your willingness to always be learning and, and getting joy out of the learning and the solving of problems. And it just, you know, gives me peace and comfort hanging out with you because of how you embrace these opportunities to do good. You know, walking your talk is not just so other people will say she walks or talk. It's totally to feed your own heart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. You're, you're absolutely right. And thank you for that. That's a very nice thing to say. And I think you'd like it there because I make cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason I'm saying these things. It's just for the cake. <laughs> just for the cake. Yes. Summer on beets and carrots. I know. <laughs> and I know that's a thing. Like, for me, that was a bit of a revelation. Like, I really had to stretch my brain back 18 years ago with a thought that somebody had for 20 years by then been growing most of their own food. But then the next brain stretch was how that changes your year. Like, you have the harvest time when you're up till midnight. And you have winter where most of your food is kind of a little bit pre-made, right? It's, it's lovely. And I actually... You know, a lot of people don't like November because it's kind of gray and dull. And for me, it's like, thank God. <laughs> it's, it's over, you know, more or less. I mean, I still have a bunch of beets to pickle and, you know, various. There's always things. But really, you're right. It's, it's there, you know. 
there's the squash behind you on the shelf. And, oh, there's some zucchini up there that I should do something with. But, you know, it really is. It really is kind of pre-made, and that's when I can do things like work with textiles or read or spend more time outside in the winter not working. <laughs> yeah. What I also love is your vision. If you spend time in any other city, Thunder Bay just is sprawling. It's so sprawling. But if we transformed the lawns into green corridors and food gardens, and children grew up in that, and people grew old in that, and neighbors collaborated in that, wow. Like, wouldn't that be a beautiful transformation to see take place? Wouldn't it? I mean, it just... um... I find it kind of appalling sometimes. We're outside almost all the time in the summer, either in the front yard, backyard, we're just outside. We've been able to create a larger oasis in the city, and so we've been so fortunate because when we're in it, we really don't feel like we're in the city. We feel like we're in the country. It's, it's a marvel. We go outside, we spend a lot of time out there, and I'm appalled at how, how few people are outside, mm-hmm. especially this last... I'd say the last five years, there used to be kids playing in the neighborhood all the time. No longer. You hardly ever hear kids playing. But I know they're there because, you know, you see them at the bus stop, but they're just not outside. And I find that very, very disturbing. I don't know what that's going to mean for the future, that Mm -hmm. there are so few connections that we're making with each other, with the world, the natural world. And certainly, you know, having a whole street full of trees and shrubs and a whole green corridor. Wow, that would be wonderful. Mm. We'd have like all sorts of animals like rats and foxes, <laughs> which, you know, not everybody would appreciate, but they have their place. They do. They're very manageable. It's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And the benefits, you know, they're talking all the time about urban environments and the urban forest and all the enormous health benefits and temperature regulation and climate resilience benefits that can be had from having more trees, having more green spaces, and having people out in them more. And yet, the culture is one of containment, including our children and our elders Mm -hmm. and our days. So it would not be easy to just say you can. I think it would need a cultural shift to lead the way somehow. So that that's where people again feel called to be, is back outside with a level of comfort, without it having to be on a snowmobile or driving out to a perfectly groomed something or other to do something very specific, but just because that's where you'd rather be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that more and more people are living a virtual life, mm. and I think that's part of that whole disconnect with the natural world is, I think, going to lead to all sorts of problems even more than we have now. But there is a cheap solution, too. Like, all of these containments are expensive in, in many ways. And, and I think we're built to be much more connected to the places we live. It, it's, it nourishes us in many ways. So, although I don't know how the heck to make it happen easily, I like your vision. I, it gives me... It gives me direction and permission to say, how can we make more of that happen, you know, to really value it. And I think our values are a big part of 
of what I really appreciate about how you weigh your choices, that you put values first. Like you own three houses, mm-hmm. not so you can have a house that is as wide as your average three houses, right? <laughs> it's because you want to grow your own food next to your home and you want to build soil because you find that rewarding and you know it's valuable. Like that's values in action, right? Yes, and we want the garages so that we could keep all of the stuff that we collect. <laughs> because that's part of the other thing that really drives me nuts is, you know, as a society, we've become, we're a throwaway society, right? People buy all sorts of stuff, keep it for a short period of time, and then get rid of it. I think that's also a, a real major problem that we're, that we're facing this waste. Waste, overconsumption. And it's not just waste, it's also the, you need energy to create all of these things. You ship them here, that requires energy. You're constantly using energy just to create waste. Just drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. And so part of our sustainability ethic, and it's always been this way, has been to really be very, very careful about resources and not throw away anything that we could conceivably use. And... In some ways, it's so much easier to just throw everything away and never have to deal with it. But we've been able to save all sorts of wood and insulation. And, you know, when you're doing house projects, there's all sorts of stuff that we've been able to use in other projects. And that is also super satisfying to know that you can, you know, open the garage door and pull out a quarter round that you took out of a house 15 years ago and... And use it again. Mm. So, because that's the circular economy in practice, then, Lucy. Yeah, that was a new concept. For me. I know, <laughs> but it's an old concept. I know, but it's coming. It's coming in with people trying to change what we value, yes. right? So yeah. that we don't yeah. waste energy, transport, yes. resources, elements, materials. But it's not just recycling. It's so much bigger than that. And a lot yeah. of it's about building things to last. Yes. learning how to yeah. repair. Yeah. And learning how to hold on to the stuff because it's and keep track of it so you can yes. find it when you yeah. need it. Yeah, except that what happens at our at the age that I'm at now is we're starting to. I'm in my mid sixties, so we're you know I'm I'm looking ahead and realizing that at some point I will not have the energy to keep up this lifestyle and I will need to simplify. And so now it's like okay, so how do we pass this on in a way? All of these different things that we have in a way. That makes sense where we're not throwing away. So it really requires a lot of thinking, a lot of actual research and work to figure out how to how to deal with it. Because if you don't want to throw stuff away, well, first of all, don't buy it. But secondly, you know, when you when you do have whatever you've got, it it requires effort to figure out how to deal with it in a way that isn't, you know, going to burden someone else. So Kijiji has become a very good friend. The Kijiji Free, you know, here, 15 windows, <laughs> you know. It's been great because people come and, and get the stuff and they're really happy and excited because they can use it. And I'm really happy because it's out of the garage. <laughs> but I also think about this again, like you're leading away, you're, you're proving a possibility And if we could move from your way being an outlier to all of us valuing the logic of it and the inevitability of it. We cannot continue mining the earth infinitely, right? There there has to be a reuse, reduce, 
be thoughtful and sustainable in in our social choices and our systems as well as you know an individual trying to carve out a little niche that meets the logic needs of the planet against all odds you know and make it something more commonly valued and applied yes i've always been a thrifter not because it's inexpensive but because i will not buy clothes where I am not sure how the textiles are made, who made them, are there any little kids involved doing some of this work in you know, garment factories, especially, you know, 35, 40 years ago, it, was, it really was very, very unregulated. And so if I'm thrifting, I know that I am not contributing to the problem. I'm, in fact, helping to. And I just heard on the radio that thrifting in, in Canada has just skyrocketed. And it just makes my little heart warm <laughs> to think that what was like, you know, you wouldn't have told anyone you were going to the thrift store has become a thing to do. And it just makes me feel really happy. So there's hope in that too. You know, there is hope in we can get organic food now in town, right? So if we have a carrot failure, ah, we could buy organic carrots. We're not carrotless. That's a weird word. <laughs> But I knew exactly what you meant, so it worked as a word. It's a new word for me. Um, yeah, so things are changing, but not quite fast enough. Oh, far from fast enough, right? So far, it's been hard to find the evidence of progress. A lot of it because it's not considered newsworthy, perhaps, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they are shifts instead of switches, and switches catch our attention, and shifts are easy to miss. Mm-hmm. But also, there's just not enough. So... It is a time for an uprising, absolutely. But knowing what we're uprising and reaching for is very helpful. And another thing I think of with you and waste is, uh, okay, so we just did the greener homes thing on our house. And we were all excited uh, to get financing to put in solar. We tried to do it last time they were financing it. And it would have cost so much money, like we couldn't finance it. So here it comes around again. Maybe this time it's cheaper now to put in solar. We could do that. That was our big plan. And to replace our air conditioner with a heat pump. We're excited to get a heat pump into the house. Well, they came and did their test, and they said, what you really want is insulation. How unsexy is that? Insulation, right? And we'd done some insulation like 10 years earlier. We were really surprised that that was their thought. But then we slept on it and thought, well, what's the point of a heat pump if you're just blowing air right out through cracks again? Like, that's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. I think they know what they're talking about. Let's do this insulation thing instead of the solar power. That'll have to wait, the solar power. Hmm. Oh, my gosh, it's nice having a toasty house, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And you just put a little fire on, and, it, and the house is warm all day, right through the next morning? Like, it's crazy. And these unsexy, simple things, they make life more affordable. I mean, we cut wood to heat our house, so what am I saving? My time, my labor, but I'm still saving it. You're saving Arno's time and labor. Yeah, you're honest. <laughs> <laughs> that is very, very true. <laughs> and Ben and Sam, I know, put the good work on that way more often than I am. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's true. Yeah, and there's a lot of unsexy stuff that's happened, right? Yeah, but there is so much more. There is so much more. It's hard to be hopeful sometimes. I mean, the thing that really burnt me out was looking at microplastics. That was about 
I guess it was about five years ago now when I was working on sources of toxins in the environment and looking at microplastics and what they're doing to the whole planet, basically. It's another problem that's like climate change that is just so giant that requires a total shift in how we do things, you know? Mm-hmm. It just does. Like, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Um, and it's also part of the climate issue, right? Because it's plastics, and plastics require oil, and they require manufacture and all of the rest of it. Well, the big, I read a thing about how we went from plastic being a rarity when I was a kid. You know, we took home our groceries and paper bags. We, you know, the vegetables you just put into that bag, they didn't have a special wrapping or anything. And I'm 52, that wasn't that long ago, until there, it's really hard to do anything without somehow plastic being a part of it. And that was a huge push, apparently, by the petrol company to find uses for the, the parts of the oil they couldn't sell otherwise, right, to broaden the, the need. And now when you go to the dump, they have that cutaway wall, the truth wall, to show you what's in the dump, and it's plastic. Mm. It's, yeah. It goes down like 40 feet of plastic. Yep, there's our oil resources. You know, it's just, uh, yeah. And anyway, that's a huge issue. They're now everywhere. They're inside our bodies. They're in everything, you know. And I think to myself, here I am in Thunder Bay, you know, away from big sources of pollution. But I know darn well that we're all in it. But, yeah, lots of problems. Lots of problems. And and lots of, of kind of distracting us from them mm. and pitting us against one another kind of getting between us so we can't collaborate as easily. We're more easily divided than mm-hmm. united. Mm-hmm. Um, that also needs to be addressed in order for us to get enough done as quickly as it needs to be done to save the world, mm-hmm. to be fair. I think one of the things that I find so distressing are the divisions that we're creating um, that we aren't coming together. And I see it happening. I think I've read too many dystopian novels. Because, <laughs> you know, you see it happening. As resources get more rare, more difficult to obtain, people don't work together to share them. They see who can get the most. You can already see that happening. And don't even get me started on politics. The insider thinking and the compartmentalization and the morphine and it just leaks through and creates these these strange groupings of people that that share a hate share a hate share a hate that's a really good way of putting it and i find that really distressing because as things get worse i think we're going to get worse not better well, that's one of the things about a climate crisis, that if it were a crisis like a, like a fire or a flood or, you know, you're on a ship that's going down, people drop divisions and instinctively they are generous to one another and they save one another and there's an enormous equality between us all and, and between other life as well. We, our inherent valuing of life rises up when there is that adrenaline rush of crisis. But the climate crisis is so multifaceted and politicized, but also gradual. And when you're in the crisis that's 
the wildfire or the flood that's tied to climate crisis, the last thing you want to be told is how it's part of a global problem because you are dealing with today and the problems ahead of you today and you're having a really hard time looking beyond your borders, either temporal or physical. But I do believe in the inherent connectedness of us. And I do think a part of the division going on right now is about that virtual living, that when your connections are primarily through internet connections, it's too easy to just go from friend to foe and judge somebody as opposed to if um, you know you guys garden next to each other at a community lot and that person has an opposing opinion to yours you might tolerate it you might gently address it you're not going to cut them off and hate them very easily because you have a relationship that has some substance to it that's very true and I mean I think we are hardwired to seek common ground or at least I know I am what I always look for is what we have in common and you can't get at that very easily on social media that's just not what it's meant it's just not the way that works right honestly I really shut my ears and my eyes to social media because I just don't want to go there you know from what I hear from what I've seen from what I see in my neighbors, it is totally not worth it. Oh, dinner. We were out, at, out for dinner. A grandmother with three children ranging in age from probably 8 to 14. No one said a word the whole dinner long. Everybody was on their phones. And I thought, ooh, I'm not there. That's not where I'm going. I'm just not going there. Yeah. It's so unhealthy. Yeah. Healthy is know your neighbor sometimes. Mm-hmm. Healthy is know your neighborhood and get outside in it, mm-hmm. right? right? And know the people you're buying from when you, mm-hmm. when you choose to buy from a local store. I know the more I, I get an opportunity to see behind the curtain at local business, the more I'm in awe of farmers, certainly, but also most small business operators are not profit-driven at all. You know, they just want to meet a need. They are so, uh, see how they can contribute, and that is their driving force, sometimes to their own, often, to their own detriment, their generosity Mm -hmm. to their clients. But I think that's kind of how we function when we let ourselves have real connections to our place and our communities. And that does give me hope, right? Because at least the, the precedent's certainly there, and I think the instinct is there, and hopefully we're at the far side of some kind of a swing. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I agree with you. I think, we, I think we probably are at the far side of the swing because it's becoming evident that climate change is real. It's happening. It's becoming evident that social media is dividing us. It's becoming evident that politicians are unable to create the change without enhancing divisions. Everything is becoming so much more evident that something has to happen. I think we're at a tipping point. Yeah, yeah. And the joy is that a lot of the solutions are coming together, which feels good, you know, and Mm -hmm. and valuing soil and insulation and (laughs) stuff I can keep in my garage till I need to use it next, you know? And beet carrot cake. Shall we have a piece? Excellent plan. Lucy Lavois. She and her husband Ken Deacon have been growing most of what they eat in their backyard in Thunder Bay for almost 40 years. They'll be sharing tips and and happy to meet new people who share their passion for the planet at the Northwest Climate Gathering this weekend. And I hope to see you there. 
Check out the link. I'll put it in the show notes. Now, here's the song I wrote just now in its entirety. Front yard's full of all that is wild Backyard's bursting with food It beguiles children playing Neighbors saying How good it is living here How good it is living here I go to the garden
That's Lucy's vision. And that's it for this episode. I won't have a new episode for you next week, but I will have an episode, after all. I've decided to post anew the conversation I had with Brendan Grant back in my first season early last year. Brendan and his wife Marcel own Sleepy G Farm which is the only certified organic farm anywhere near Thunder Bay. It's also a community-supported agriculture farm. And Brendan puts out an amazing (laughs) newsletter that I gobble up every time he sends it out, full of his thoughts and their adventures in that farm and as a farmer at this time. He's a very thoughtful and articulate guy and a pleasure to chat with, so I know you will love that conversation. He's also one of the people informing and leading discussions at the Northwest Climate Gathering. He's going to be focusing on an idea he first proposed in that same podcast episode I'm going to share with you again. So I think it's worth a repeat, and I know you'll enjoy it. I'm so glad you listened today. I invite you to visit www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca where you can join my newsletter. I send it out weekly during each season with behind-the-scenes stories, breaking news. And also on that website, you can find all of the more than three dozen episodes of the show that I've made so far. My name's Heather McLeod, and this is my one-woman show. I book the guests, I write the script, I compose and perform the music, I research and then I check the facts, and therefore every error and opinion is my own. I'm so glad you listened, and I hope you come back often. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different.